You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled How to Make Customers Love You, Fulfillment and Service Tips, and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Simple Fulfillment. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thanks again to everyone for joining us today. My name is Jared Wright. I'm the um, head of the marketing team here at Chargebacks 911. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar, Chargebacks 911 helps merchants by preventing uh, credit card disputes. Um, and then we also help merchants by refuting illegitimate credit card disputes uh, once they happen. Uh, I'm real excited to have, uh, I'm going to probably get his last name wrong, but uh, Damon Routson. Uh, he's the head of revenue at Simple. Um, did, did I get it? I know we practiced before the webinar, but did I get your name right? You, that was a 10 out of 10. <laughs> Great. Um, so thank you for joining us today, uh, Damon. Do, do you want just at the top, I think if you want to give um, the audience a, a little bit of information about what Simple Fulfillment does, um, I think that'd be a good idea. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, hi everyone. I'm Damon. Um, I run the revenue team here at Simple. Um, so sales, a little bit of marketing, um, and client success. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Simple Fulfillment, we are, um, a fulfillment center based out of Austin, Texas. We've been around for about seven years. Um, and our main focus is helping, uh, either existing e-commerce clients move to more optimal methods of shipping and fulfilling their products. Um, and we also work with a couple of brick and mortar retails to help them convert to e-commerce and then to also increase their distribution, um, and overall revenue as well. So kind of all over the place, but yeah. That's great. And thank you. Thank you, uh, for joining us today. Um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to get into some of these topics with you. Um, before we get started, though, let me just kind of break down how this webinar is going to be structured. Um, Damon and I are going to give um, sort of a short presentation at the top, um, kind of go through the uh, the subject matter of the webinar, kind of kind of paint an abstract picture for you guys, and then um, we're going to go through a Q&A portion uh, where we answer some of the questions that were submitted ahead of the webinar. Um, the first part of the webinar will be fairly visual, so if you can, um, you know, kind of give us your attention for those so you can sort of pay attention to the slides. Uh, the second half of the webinar uh, will be less visual, so if you're an auditory learner and just kind of want to listen to that part, um, that's totally fine. Uh, we will release a recording of the webinar tomorrow. You should automatically receive an email with a link to that recording. Um, <clears throat> the recording may not be complete. We don't always include all of the questions in the Q&A in case I... Uh, give away a secret or something like that. Um, so if you do want the most out of today's event, we definitely uh, encourage you to stick around. Um, this webinar will also be available uh, on our podcast eventually. Um, so if you like to listen to podcasts, I encourage you to search uh, uh, Charge Forward with Chargebacks 911, however you listen to podcasts, and uh, you can subscribe and you can hear some of our past webinars. All right. We'll go ahead and um, get the party started. Uh, for those of you where this is the first webinar that I've hosted, I like to start these with what I call a dumb question. Um, the reason for that is I think it's uh, important to be unafraid to ask dumb questions when you have one. Uh, and, and I have a unique opportunity to get to speak with different industry experts like Damon. Um, so I want to make sure that I am fearless in uh, my, my willingness to ask dumb questions. So. Do you mind, will you humor me, Damon? Will you um, let me ask you a dumb question at the top? 
You know, they say that there's no such thing as a dumb question, though well, I, I don't know say, if I agree sometimes. That's true, <laughs> just, right, yeah. <laughs> that's something they say, but but those people haven't been to too many of my webinars. Um, so I actually had a really, really dumb question, and so I decided to make it my dumb question. Um, I saw Damon's slides, and we, we kind of talked about what, how, what we're going to talk about during this webinar um, yesterday. And uh, he used a term on a few of his slides that was uh, the, uh, 3PL. And I didn't know uh, what what that term was, um, and so I admitted that to him, and and um, it, it seemed like a really uh, perfect dumb question. But then he sort of provided some additional information, and so I'm still not 100% sure. Uh, Damon, you said something about now there's 4PL, and um, and I still don't fully understand where simple fits in that 3PL, 4PL. What is all? What are all of those terms? In case anybody sees uh, those on your slides coming up. <laughs> No, I was going to say, and it, 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 honestly, it's, it's still a little bit confusing even for me after working in here for a while. Um, it's one of those terms that I feel like the definition will change with technology, but, um, I will give the best overview that I can. So, uh, the, the term is easy. So PL in both terms, 3PL and 4PL stands for party logistics. So third party logistics and fourth party logistics. Um, they're the main difference and what we'll find uh, across most fulfillment centers is that they define themselves as 3PLs. The way that that word actually is defined, um, is a, operation that is managed by a business. So for example, if you think of, you know, a wholesaler, if you're selling, you know, sodas to Walmart, um, you are essentially telling a warehouse, I want this sent here and I want that sent there. And you're kind of managing your own distribution. Where 4PL comes in is when the actual distribution center starts to get involved in your overall distribution model and process which is more the case for e-commerce brands because e-commerce brands aren't instructing us, um, you know, what to use, how to pack things. And so we make a lot of the decisions in-house. Now there's going to be a debate always about, you know, if a 3PL or 4PL is the best definition for us, we're kind of in the middle, I like to call it. Um, but hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. So 3PL is generally managed by you, the company, 4PL is generally managed by that actual like party logistics company. That is, that's, it's a little bit clearer, but at least I know um, third-party <laughs> logistics, fourth-party logistics, at least I know, um, you know, th those terms. Next time I see that, I will understand that. Um, great. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to get started today. I always really like having um, a fulfillment company or somebody in the logistics side of things because I think it's, you know, we, we try to find companies where there's some synergy between uh, chargebacks and the service that the company provides. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, when we when we work with, for example, a fraud company, uh, it's a little bit more obvious to, to listeners. But um, logistics is one of those things where a lot of times people it's sort of the third thing that they think about or it's it's maybe something they never really think about um, when they think about chargebacks. Um, but really what it comes down to is a big part of chargeback management is making sure that you're eliminating all of the things that you're doing to cause a customer to be unhappy. Um, at the end of the day, that's the biggest piece. Um, in fact, I, I would say that's the thing that really set Chargebacks 911 apart from our competitors is when we started, we really took a holistic approach and we said, look, we know, you know, some, some pretty, pretty smart ways to, uh, uh, you know, dispute these cases and we know how to put together, you know, really compelling evidence and, uh, 
you know, get a lot of these chargebacks overturned. But the thing that made our job the easiest was that we helped our merchants eliminate sort of uh, unforced errors. Uh, so they, we didn't have a lot of those chargebacks that were being caused by one preventable criminal fraud or two uh, mistakes that the, the customer was making. Mm -hmm. Now, this first slide is an idea because I think, you know, this is something I started thinking about when when COVID first came around. Um, you know, ten years ago, eight years ago, whenever uh, Prime first entered the market, there was some pressure that was applied to the e-commerce industry, the online retail industry. And, um, the, you know, there was a lot of complaints back then, uh, you know, about the, the, you know, how are people going to be able to compete with Amazon with this two day free shipping? Um, I think the, the average time of shipping was probably like a week or two weeks for for most e-commerce up until that point. Um, and so when Amazon came with the, their free two day shipping, it, it created sort of pressure uh, in the e-commerce space and the, the businesses that have thrived in the, the sort of new paradigm after Amazon are the ones that um, were able to adapt, right? They're the ones that were able to figure out how to how to compete with two-day free shipping, how to offer, you know, maybe three-day shipping or, you know, uh, two-day, uh, um, you know, inexpensive shipping uh, and and sort of, sort of took to the challenge and, uh, uh, you know, allowed the pressure to allow them to grow. Um, I think there's a new sort of paradigm, and I, I hate using that word, it's cheesy, but there's a new pressure being applied to e-commerce retail, um, and that's the, the COVID pressure. Um, and I, I think the reason why is because there has been this sort of tidal wave of uh, uh, user behavior, of customer behavior that has shifted online away from things that would normally be purchased in a brick and mortar uh, setting. Um, the example I like to give is, you know, let's say, uh, um, uh, a mother used to always buy her makeup. You know, she used to go to the store and, and go through the whole process of getting the makeup applied um, and, you know, talking to the, to the, to the girl at the counter. This is an area I actually don't know that much about, but I know that there's a, there's a, there's a process that, that some, that women like to go through when they look at their makeup. And, um, you know, during COVID, she may have decided, well, I'm going to start buying my makeup online. So the, Competitor, the, the 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 people applying pressure now um, are not other retailers. It's in-person retailers, not other online stores. Um, and in similar to when Amazon was the the pressure, um, the businesses that respond positively, right, that figure out, hey, there's customers out there. I need to figure out how to provide a as good or better experience than they're than they're used to having in store. Right. Because what you, the goal right now, the, the name of the game for online retail, as far as I'm concerned, is, you know, create an experience that competes with that in-person experience in some kind of way so that when things, you know, fully go back to normal, you know, they're kind of almost already there now. Those those customers continue that online shopping behavior uh, versus versus transitioning back to the brick and mortar. Um, and. You know, when we talk about uh, a lot of these things, you know, you, you can say that the the things that are in the sort of post-sale after the transaction, those things in most businesses get, in, in my experience, they get under sort of focused on, right? 
there's a lot of, you know, even in, even in our business here, there's a lot of effort in, okay, well, what does this landing page look right? What is the correct offer? How do we, how do we get engagement? How do we attract people to our website? Where do we run these ads? Um, in e-commerce, I'm sure that there's even more attention paid to that. Um, you know, there's a lot of attention in a lot of cases where people are trying to prevent fraud, right? So they've got really complicated, multi-layered fraud approaches. Um, they're, they're really thinking about this stuff and they're tweaking it and they're, they're being really creative and thinking outside the box. And then when you're talking about the post-sale stuff, when you talk about customer support, fulfillment, um, the way that they handle refunds and exchanges, um, things like that, they, they just sort of, they're just sort of tacked on. Um, and I have a slide in another presentation I did and I basically showed like, you know, look, think about your last marketing email that went to your prospect list or went to your, your customer list where you were trying to get them to do something. And think about the creative effort that you put into that versus think about the, the email that goes out for most businesses or probably your business that notifies people of a, of a transaction, right? So the receipt in email, essentially. Um, you know, that email is just usually like a text email that just goes out. Um, and, and that I think is, is the area where there's a lot of opportunity for a lot of businesses to delight customers and to, and to really impress upon them, um, a, a positive shopping experience. <clears throat> now, all of this ties back to chargebacks because at the end of the day, merchants need to understand that the hard truth is that delighted customers don't file disputes. That's just the truth. Now there is, there is the, the very rare case, and we talk a lot about friendly fraud. And friendly fraud is a very real thing, right? But when we talk about friendly fraud, we're saying illegitimate chargebacks, right? That doesn't mean that the customer doesn't have a reason to be upset, okay? So they may not legally have a right to file a dispute, right? Their, uh, their complaint may be frivolous, or they may misrepresent the situation in order to be able to file that chargeback. So it is friendly fraud, but, but more often than not, friendly fraud is not a instance of, somebody trying to game the system. There is some of that, but that's that's a sort of smaller subset. So when we talk about friendly fraud and when we talk about illegitimate chargebacks, there is oftentimes things that the merchant can do to prevent those chargebacks from happening in the first place. Not, not in all cases, uh, for sure, maybe not even in a lot of cases, um, but, uh, but in many, many cases, uh, uh, making sure that your customers are very happy is gonna be one of the easiest, most efficient ways for you to uh, reduce the number of uh, friendly fraud chargebacks. And so I think that's really, you know, that'll lead into the things that, that Damon's talking about today because fulfillment, you know, having that experience, delivering those products, um, engaging with those customers in a post-transaction setting is is some of the things that can really move the needle. Um, and a lot of times it's small things. And so, so that's why I'm, I'm excited to have Damon here because he's going to talk about some of that. So let me give um, Damon the control of the uh, keyboard and mouse. Okay, Damon, if you accept that, um, you should be good to go. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm actually super happy. It wasn't a plant for those in the audience. Um, but that skincare and makeup and beauty came up because I, um, as someone that works in, in e-commerce and logistics, it's actually one of the most, um, I would say interesting um, industries in, in the e-commerce space. So I'm going to actually reference that a few times just because I think it's interesting, but anywho, we'll get there on the next couple of slides. Um, for those of you who know this, um, this, I, I just, I don't want to dwell here too much, but I think it's actually quite helpful to talk about the supply chain model when we're actually thinking about e-commerce, 
three PL, four PL, whatever you know you want to you want to coin. Um, and so here's a pretty you know generic um, reduced down model of what a general supply chain might look like. And you can tell that there's a ton of steps. There's obviously a ton of involvement from the business that's creating products in this. Um, and so what I really like to point out and to really magnify in is these last couple of steps from the distributor to the retailer or the 3PL and from that 3PL or retailer to the actual consumer. Because what happens is, is that a lot of times that's where people really look for whether it's the most cost savings or they put the least amount of thought in that particular process. But when you have a perfect product or an awesome um, packaging or whatever it might be, and it's not getting executed correctly by either the distributor to the warehouse or the warehouse to the 3PL, then all of the dollars that came previous to that are essentially going down the drain. And so being able to identify the importance of having a good partnership for that final mile is super key. Not only that, but then to have a knowledgeable 3PL because the actual final mile is being done by the carrier, whether that's USPS, DHL, so on and so forth. And what other people will find is that when we race to the bottom for fulfillment, generally what happens is we're also racing to the bottom for that final mile carrier, meaning that your customer is going to have a real crappy experience. So this slide is just to really kind of enhance the idea that Partnering with your 3PL isn't so much just about logistics, but we quite literally have a ton to do, more so than you probably thought previous, to your customer experience and being able to make them a ton happier than they could be otherwise. So I want to talk real quickly, uh, and this is how I'll structure my portion, um, but what I've coined to be the three P's of three PLs. So we'll talk about packaging, we'll talk about personalization, and we'll talk about postage and the priority of postage. Um, obviously, I could talk about a ton, but we'll go over some kind of fast facts and laying the landscape, and then also talk about ways that you might want to talk to someone like me um, or at another 3PL um, to determine, you know, what the best way to tackle these three Ps are. So we'll start with uh, packaging. So I was going to use my keyboard, but it doesn't seem to work. Um, all right, so... Um, all of these are probably obvious, maybe, and if they're not, then that's even better. Um, but I think these statistics are pretty powerful. So one, consumers are forming impressions of brands within seven seconds. Obviously, it's not always going to be the packaging. Um, it's not always going to be the 3PL. Sometimes it's the website, but people think fast and decide real quick. So being able to kind of get in there and do a good job is, is gonna be key for retention and actually converting. Um, the second thing, and this is probably what I like to focus on the most, is that research shows that almost as many consumers find that packaging is just as important as the actual brand, meaning that before they've even interacted with your product, they've already made a perception of how the quality of this product is going to be, um, and they find it just as important as the product in and of itself. 
And I'll throw this one in there too, because obviously Jared brought this one up. Um, in the beauty industry specifically, which this is probably not a surprise, um, beauty industry by far has one of the largest marketing budgets in all of e-commerce. It's super competitive, it's expensive, there's a ton of big players. But what's interesting is that 77% of consumers, and this is um, from uh, a Forrester study, found that they will willingly and knowingly pay more for a product if it has good packaging or if it has personalized packaging, which we've seen a movement for too. So super key there. Um, same thing with that second or the third line, 52% of online shoppers that receive orders in custom packaging are gonna purchase again. And then this final one, and I'm, <laughs> This is a fun fact. I actually went to college and my, my degree, I have a specialty in environmental philosophy. So don't kill me, my past professors. But research actually shows that customers really don't make decisions based on uh, environmental packaging. Um, not to say that it's not important, but I have noticed a big trend in, uh, in investments going there, which I find interesting because obviously it's better for the earth, but it's not really being driven by um, actual like research. Obviously it's a selling point, but um, I think this is just really interesting to kind of undercut the, the conversation around um, the best decisions for your packaging. So what can we do to kind of help accelerate your brand uh, and to also kind of prevent some of those downfalls on the last slide? So number one, um, and this is just a sheer logistics problem is being able to work with a 3PL to optimize your dimensional weight. For those of you who don't know what dimensional weight is, I will try and simplify this as much as possible. Um, a one pound package is only one pound if it isn't a small box. Um, but the larger the box, it increases what uh, carriers will call the dimensional weight. So for example, uh, a, a one foot by one foot by one foot box might have a two pound item inside, but USPS will see that same one pound box being closer to about eight pounds. So while you think that you're sending something for two pounds, they've actually billed you for eight. So being able to find the best way to optimize your packaging to make sure that you're paying the least for the postage that you're actually getting. Um, and that goes into leveraging relationships. A lot of us 3PLs have relationships with box manufacturers, um, with you know label makers, with printers, so on and so forth, that we can actually help step in and guide the process to both make sure that we're optimizing weight. And then on the right side, if sustainability is a value of your brand, that we're also able to be able to leverage relationships to find you the best packaging. Um, and then that's the final piece too. Some 3PLs recycle products. Some have machines that they can recycle boxes. Uh, you can ask those questions as well, but those are conversations that we're also super happy to have as well. So next, and this is kind of similar, but we'll talk about personalization because personalization and packaging obviously have a lot to do together. Um, but here's some more fast facts for you. Again, they'll be pretty similar. 71% um, of consumers feel frustrated when shopping experiences are impersonal. That's brick and mortar, that's e-commerce, that's everywhere. 80% um, of consumers are more likely to make a purchase from a brand that provides personalized experience. 79% of CPG retailers are investing in personalization. 
And while they're doing so, they're finding that 95% of those companies that are investing in personalization see a three times return on investment in their personalization efforts. And that is why we see brands like Estee Lauder um, and also newer and upcoming skincare brands like Glossier, uh, Sun, uh, uh, super goop that are investing a ton in getting customers um, because those customers are going to be lifelong customers when they feel valued by the actual brand. And how does that happen? Through personalization and through packaging. So let's talk about ways that we can tackle these. Um, one of the common questions that we get is that sometimes personalization can be expensive. One of the ways that you can work with your 3PL is by coming up with easier ways to personalize or personalize on scale. So whether that's using custom tape, custom stickers, rather than investing in large uh, MOQs of boxes, um, that's a way to easily cut into uh, the cost of getting a new box and being able to reduce uh, the or to increase the scalability and the uh, agility of that. Um, the second thing, and you're probably wondering what this water faucet has anything to do with, um, with you know, fulfillment and with personalization. Um, there are specific industry standards for personalization. And so if I walk into a Home Depot, for example, I'm not really going to expect that if I go in and I buy a brand new sink faucet, that it's going to be the most personalized experience of my life, right? I'm really looking for like a quality sink. I'm looking for probably a big name brand. Um, and so the, the, the need to personalize goes down a bit. Whereas, uh, going back and really kicking a dead horse, but going back to skincare, where we know that that industry is hyper personalized, we would be silly to completely ignore that fact, which is that we really need to invest there. And so knowing what your industry standards are and the industry landscape is also really important. And we can have those conversations as a lot of us have had experiences with different clients across different industries. The final thing um, is just looking for different, more creative ways to personalize. And some 3PLs offer services like this, some don't. Um, everyone kind of runs their own, but gift wrapping is something that we've done in the past that has been awesome around the holidays or for birthdays writing handwritten notes, we've seen a really large uptick on smaller brands um, coming on social medias like TikTok and Instagram, where consumers actually receive their package and do unboxing. Um, and those videos are getting a ton of engagement, showing that people are actually invested in the packaging and watching a video about that more so than they're watching the reviews of the actual product in itself. So just being able to come up with creative ways to make that unboxing and that packaging experience and that personalization experience a ton better is not only going to make the customer that gets that want to stick around, but it's probably also going to increase the likelihood that they're going to run away and go tell somebody else about that experience, whether it's in person or it's on social. So those are three ways that we can generally work with clients. Obviously, there's a ton more. Um, but personalization is, is by far, I will say, one of the one of the most important things to consider when you're developing your brand and your experience. Oops. So the final thing that we're going to talk about, and this kind of references what Jared was talking about with Amazon, uh, which I don't want to, you know, I won't have to explain why that's important, um, but is priority and postage. So slow shipping times, um, which are almost always going to be influenced by 3PLs if you are using a fulfillment center, 
are going to deter about 40% of consumers from making a purchase. Um, additionally, on that same uh, note, absorbing the shipping cost into your cost of goods and your retail value is going to increase uh, your AOV by about 30%. So having a conversation about that is also going to be key. And then also working with your 3PL to determine how that will embed into their cost is something uh, to note. And then the thing that I don't really need to probably get into at all, because I would be shocked if someone had not heard of Amazon, um, two-day shipping is the standard. I live in Austin, Texas. About 80% of the things that I have ordered on Amazon in the last three to four months have been delivered to my door the very next day. And so not only was there pressure from Prime when it first launched, but there's now starting to become an increasing pressure on the ability to fulfill and ship fast as Amazon has taken two day and is starting to push the standard even further, um, making that abil uh, the ability to uh, fulfill and to ship fast um, pretty important. So what can we do? We can do a couple of things, and some of these are going to be more obvious than others. Um, the number one thing um, is communication of sales to client or to your 3PLs. And so why is this important? 3PLs generally operate pretty, you know, pretty standard throughout the week. Um, orders generally are pretty, you know, ebbs and flows. But on, let's say, um, a random day you decide to run a 50% off sale that skyrockets your sales and your sale volume by maybe four or five times. If that's not communicated to your 3PL, there's almost a 100% guarantee that your fulfillment for those items are going to be delayed. What does that delay do? That makes a horrible customer experience. And once you have not shipped in a couple of days, that's when people start charging things back to their card, canceling orders, whatever it might be. And so that is a super easy thing to do to prevent that from happening, um, but to also make sure that your sales are actually being able to capture that entire revenue. Number two is the optimization of shipping methods and the communication of any delays. So there's a component of responsibility on 3PLs, but there's also a responsibility of individual brands um, to be able to communicate what the shipping landscape is looking like. So we all know that there have been delays from COVID. I roll my eyes now every time I hear about it because, you know, we've been living it for about three years or two years or time has kind of stopped for me. Um, and so being able to communicate what those delays are. If FedEx is running behind during the holidays, um, if you've noticed that your shipping times might be a little slower than normal, being on the upfront and getting ahead of any sort of issues and communicating to your clients, hey, we're experiencing delays, super simple, super easy, prevents so much headache later on for everyone involved. And then the last thing is deciding between single and multi-location warehouses. So this is a big conversation in the, you know, 3PL world, which maybe sounds less exciting to you all than it does to me. Um, but, you know, when, when we're thinking about how to distribute and what the best model for that looks like, we have to think of a couple of things, the heaviness of the object, the 
you know, the heat map of where our customers are actually living to determine how to A, reduce postage, but B, also become faster at getting things to people's door. And that's why we've seen metropolitan areas like Austin, like New York City, like Chicago and LA that have Amazon Prime locations in those cities because they're able to fulfill so much faster and they're able to deliver so much faster. And so that's one of the big positives there for that. On the flip side, obviously, um, if you're a smaller and upcoming brand, it starts to make a little less sense for this cost of storage goes up, logistics go up. Um, it, it, it becomes an increasingly difficult process when you start having your things spread out across the globe, or excuse me, well, really, I could be the globe, but across the United States, probably. Um, and so having a conversation about best practices there is something that you can also talk to a 3PL about. We have one center, some have multiple, and they can also determine if they're going to house it in one or multiple if you're choosing to go with them as well. Um, so that's pretty much, I mean, the overview of, of what I consider the three Ps to be. Um, obviously, there's a ton more that we could talk about, but hopefully this has given some insight um, or maybe a lot of insight if you're feeling nice to me <laughs> um, on uh, things to talk about with your 3PLs and also just things to think about in fulfillment in general, whether you're doing it, whether, uh, you know, your, your son's doing it in their garage, um, or you've decided to move to a, a massive um, distribution model with, you know, multiple warehouses. They're all things to consider. Well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you, Damon. And, um, you know, while you were talking, I just, I had a couple of thoughts and the, the one with the personalization, you know, how you were saying, um, some some sort of products you don't need personalization other products do i bet there's an entire category of products that that are like ripe to be uh, personalized um it, it reminds me of the um the dollar shave club guy you know he took two two sort of realities you know people like subscriptions and and people need to buy razors and he sort of put them together and he, he created a product out of something that that was was you know in retrospect pretty obvious um, I, I know that there's going to be some some products that everybody's thinking about as, you know, one of those old products that really, you know, doesn't need a brand around it like a sink. Um, but really, it's uh, it's going to be if somebody can figure out how to present it in a new way and sort of create that um, personalization and that engagement with their their customers, that they'll be able to find a kind of niche. So that's uh, something. That, oh, I mean, you just summarized the the D to C startup uh, model in one sentence. <laughs> there you go. Well, it was it was a long sentence, but um, <laughs> yeah. And then um, the other thing is that a lot of the things that you were talking about, um, like I know we're, we're talking about physical goods, but there's a lot of uh, correlation between the best business practices for you know a digital product, right? Um, you know, the delivery to the to the customer can can be personalized and can be done with um, ceremony and can be done promptly. And can, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that, um, that, that uh, there's a lot of takeaways from the best business practice of the, the physical world that can be applied online for uh, retailers that don't have a physical product. So, um, <clears throat> so hopefully there was a lot of uh, benefit in, in what you were talking about today for everybody. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so with that, we're going to get to some of the questions that are going to be, you know, a little bit, um, you know, kind of go all over the place. Um, the first question is, what is the best practice to avoid chargebacks? Um, and I, um, Clive asked this question, and I, you know, and I just I wanted to leave this question in because I think um, I just wanted one more opportunity to, to to reiterate that really the best thing that you can do. Um, well, let, let me I'll tell you what the the top three are. Right. 
um, the, the first thing that you can do is just make sure you have criminal fraud under control. So um, if you have a criminal fraud liability and a lot of merchants don't, so don't assume that you do if you're getting chargebacks. Um, but if, if you have, you know, a digital product that has resale value, for example, or, you know, you have um, uh, a buy online and pick up in store or, you know, you, you, you're targeted for various reasons. Uh, um, you know, people have figured out how to how to monetize uh, credit card, um, fake credit card numbers, you know, on your store, then then eliminating that is going to be one of the most important things that you're going to do because really getting a handle on the rest of the chargebacks sort of depends in a lot of ways on that criminal fraud being um, under control, at least understanding how to accurately identify it so you're not, um, you know, sort of mixing them in with the uh, the rest of the chargebacks because criminal fraud will actually come through as reason codes that aren't criminal fraud and, and definitely friendly fraud and merchant error will come through as criminal fraud just because, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to get that coding right. There's a lot of different reasons there. So get the criminal fraud under control. And then the, the um, I'm just going to do the two. The next one I'd say is just make sure your customers are really happy because that's a big part of friendly fraud is, um, you know, just you made a mistake. You, 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 you over, over promised on a product. You sort of under delivered your shipping. You didn't communicate properly. You didn't answer the phone quick enough. It's all little things and it doesn't give the, uh, the customer an opportunity, the right to file a chargeback. Um, definitely still refute it, but, um, you know, look at, look at things that you can do because a lot of times it's easy fixes. You know, it's, uh, you know, just investing in a slightly better, more effective phone system. Um, you know, creating a couple of different avenues, uh, for, for uh, uh, customers to be able to uh, communicate with you, um, you know, the, the basic stuff, uh, <clears throat> making, making sure they love you and your brand um, is going to be one of the, the best ways. Uh, <clears throat> okay. The, Bethany wanted to know what is the best prac or what is the best balance between personalization and reducing overall costs? I think this is a good question because I, I assume that there's cost or there's, there's some sort of friction that's, uh, that's introduced when you, when you do this personalization that you've been talking about. Oh yeah. I mean, when you, I mean, when you think about what it means to personalize, personalize like a package, personalize an experience, um, we can think about it in two different ways from the packaging perspective and the, you know, the, uh, the being able to open it up and to feel a certain way. Um, we can also think about it from the digital way, which is whether it's social media, the actual physical website, um, whatever that experience is. On the packaging side, um, my number one thing that I always tell people is think before you act. Um, if you have not really had a custom box before, don't just, you know, use absolutely no thought in deciding how big that box should be, um, what the actual structure of the box should be. And it sounds really stupid and really nitpicky. Um, but for example, you know, I had a client who, when they onboarded, um, their products are pretty small. I mean, think about like maybe a pill bottle. That's about how small they are. Um, and the box that we're using was almost a foot on one of the dimensions, just in case someone had purchased multiple products. Um, what happened was we were sending out these one, you know, to two, uh, units in these large boxes. And finally, I intervened and said, you know, how about we do something else, whether it's doing custom tape, custom, um, you know, doing an insert or something that's still going to probably maybe be about the same cost in personalization. So rather than doing a personalized box, let's do a handwritten note. Let's do this. Let's do that. 
But what that did on the flip side was reduce the billable cost of that package by about 70%. So with that 70% savings, they were able to still take piece of that back, put it in their pocket, and then also look for other more creative ways to personalize. So that's something on the packaging side. On the um, you know, on the social media side, obviously, uh, I if you follow me on Twitter, um, if you've heard anything come out of my mouth before, I am the biggest proponent of TikTok. It is the cheapest um, advertising method because it is completely free. You can run ads, but posting is completely free. Um, and it's also super personal. Um, whether it's sending a free product to, you know, an influencer and having them write or, you know, make a quick little video, or whether it's just you having your consumers take videos and posting on your own brand's TikTok page, those are free ways to show that the packaging has been personalized and that there's actually a human being associated with the brand rather than just seeing it as like this massive thing. Because that's also kind of playing back in this whole thing is also going to prevent chargebacks. People, people, people don't want to charge back to someone that they know, right? That causes tension, um, helps kind of up the, up the ante, so to speak, on, on people being a little, um, you know, aggressive when it comes to, to, to bad experiences. So, um, I would say that those are, those are two big, big ways. Obviously that conversation's massive, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, definitely those two, I think are, are two of my, my favorite and top, top tips. Great. Um, okay. Jessica wants to know, how can we be proactive about friendly fraud? Um, customers just not wanting to follow policies and issuing a chargeback instead. Um, so I, I feel like I'm going to sort of be a broken record here, but but this is sort of the thinking. So one of the things that we, we get a lot, and um, a lot of times people will ask the questions, is they'll say, well, what do I put in my policy that makes it so that people don't have to file chargebacks? Um, and, and so the 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 thing is the policy is not going to be the thing that prevents the chargeback right the policy generally is going to be the thing that creates chargebacks um so so you know if there is a, something in your policy that you know like let's say for example you have um you know you you're going to charge a restocking fee um if you charge that restocking fee you're going to incur more chargebacks because people are going to get frustrated um so so you just need to kind of run the math yourself and sort of say, okay, uh, this restocking fee, you know, reduces sort of re refund abuse, sort of people, you know, buying stuff and then sending it back and us having to deal with all of that and sort of absorbing that cost. But it is creating this other liability um, and then just accurately calculate the cost of the chargeback liability um, and just run some tests, right? So, so figure out a way to segment an audience and then allow them to return it without the restock fee and then segment an audience and then and then uh, charge the restock fee and then just track it and get a real sense of what those costs are. Um, you, you know, the, the, the main thing is now if what you want to do is you want to prevent, you want to, so if you have a, a, um, a policy that's causing chargebacks, but that is sort of, there's nothing you can do about it, right? It's not a restocking fee that you could make a decision about. It's sort of innate in the way that you deliver your product or service. Then uh, in that case, what I would really re recommend is putting that uh, 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 sort of term, putting putting the, the terms of the agreement very clearly in the in a pre-checkout position, right? 
So if it's a, you know, if it's going to take two weeks, for example, for the shipping to get there because because you're doing drop shipping from China or something, make sure that they know that when when they check out. Um, don't surprise that. Don't put that at the bottom of a really, you know, really legalese uh, worded shipping policy somewhere on your website. Make sure when they check out that they know it's going to be uh, a couple of weeks before the product arrives. Um, and that does two things. One, it gives you the ability to sort of preempt that um, <clears throat> that complaint, right? So it sort of set that expectation correctly. Uh, and the other thing that it does is if you're going to just, so if they contact their bank and file a chargeback and say, I never received my product, right? Then you can show them that, look, this term was something, it's not like deep in the terms, it was something that was very clearly shown to them. Um, so when you build that representment case, you can uh, highlight how, how uh, central it was. Because uh, that's a really big thing that, that banks look at um, when you're disputing chargebacks. So I, I don't know if I fully answered the question. It probably was. A, probably Jessica's probably going to think it was a non-answer, but that's that's the way that I think about it. And at least on um, this webinar, um, that, that's the way that we would talk about it. Um, okay. So I don't know how much more time we have, but. Um, <clears throat> Okay, uh, Victoria wants to know what are some questions I should ask a 3PL. Uh, she knew the term 3PL when evaluating whether they would make a good partner. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, I like this question because she knows what 3PL is, um, and I also just love when people use the word partner um, because we are. But anyways, I won't dwell on that. Um, my response to this one is pretty simple. Um, funny, haha. That's her name. Anywho. <laughs> It's honestly whatever is important to you. I can tell you what you should ask from a logistics perspective. Um, you know, what's your turnaround time? What's your shrinkage rate? What, you know, carrier options do you have? So on and so forth. But, but I, I mean, the reason I really like the word partner is because I think there are some other questions that, that you'll find are important whether or not you think about them or not. So some of those are, what are what are the ways that we will communicate with you once you start doing our fulfillment? Whether it's, do you like phone calls? Do you like emails? Um, for us, we have a few of our clients in a guest Slack channel, so they have you know pretty quick turnaround times for questions and answers. Um, however, you want to be communicated with, I would say that's a really important question, and it's something that gets overlooked a ton when when people are going through their fulfillment process. Um, other things, right, like are whatever are important to you. So if you're a brand that focuses on customization and personalization, then those are questions. What are your capabilities? Um, you know, how much would this cost? So on and so forth. But then I would say finally, um, and, and this is, you know, maybe me being a little sneaky, I suppose, but I would maybe ask some uh, we'll call them tougher questions, um, just to kind of get a good understanding of of the the 3PLs, just industry knowledge and their ability to kind of navigate that. So whether that's um, asking questions about other 3PLs, whether it's pricing or process, um, but to get honestly a good gauge of the sophistication of the business. Because the thing that you'll find if you ever have to go through the process of finding a 3PL 
is that there are three PLs that are small kind of mom and pop shops that are just kind of getting started. Um, and then there are some massive ones. So, I mean, if you have any interest in the, in the shipping industry or in the e-commerce industry, you know, some of the larger players like ShipBob, ShipMonk, um, you know, those are, I would say, some of the larger ones. And you'll find everything in between. Um, and so, you know, for some small mom and pop works, for some, they need something that's massive. Um, but being able to kind of identify the level of sophistication and the level of knowledge that your 3PL has, I think is also just really important because they're going to be the best partner for you because they'll help you make actual good decisions rather than just punting them back to you to let you decide. Because sometimes you need that. Sometimes you don't. And that's kind of up for you to decide. So um, hopefully that answered. Obviously, there's a, a whole list. Um, but I think that those are some of the more creative things that either I've advised or that I've heard from clients that are evaluating us as a potential partner. All right. Okay. So this will probably be the last question. We're getting pretty pretty late in the hour. So I just wanted to address this one really quick. Um, Jordan uh, expresses an idea that uh, you know I've heard a lot, and uh, I know that a lot of merchants are struggling with. Uh, um, he or she wants to know uh, why do some win and others uh, with the same type of answers lose the chargeback process? Um, <clears throat> so, <laughs> yeah, um, it does feel. I think to be honest with you, our origin story uh, sort of revolves around this. This was the the challenge that um, our founders were kind of dealing with. Um, and th there's a couple of things um, um, to, to, to understand about what happens with the chargeback process. So, so the first thing is that the, um, you have to understand that the, the ultimate decider is the issuing bank, right? So it's the cardholder's bank that is um, responsible for making the, the final, final decision on whether or not um, the, um, the uh, chargeback is overturned in most cases. And the um, the issuing bank, you know, the, the customer is the cardholder. So their allegiance is to the cardholder. So they're always going to sort of err on the side of caution and, um, you know, uh, give deference to their customer when, um, when trying to figure out, uh, you know, how all of this ultimately shakes out. Um, the other thing is that uh, uh, banks are different, right? So you have different cardholders that come in and use your, um, the, the shop, on your store. So um, they're all gonna have their own sort of policies. Now you you, you probably only have one or, or maybe a handful of acquiring banks relationships, processor relationships um, for for uh, uh, filing your chargeback. So you, you may get pretty good at that first stage of you know having the, the representment accepted by your processor and, and passed on to the uh, through the schemes. But um, the the it's gonna go to a different issuing bank every time. So um, even, you know, even in the same exact instance, depending on who the cardholder's bank is, um, you know, you're, you're going to have a, a different success rate. Um, and then the third thing is that it's humans, right? It's humans that make the decision. Uh, so you're never going to get to a situation where you're winning 100% of chargebacks, right? So let's say you have only friendly fraud. You do everything perfect and every single chargeback that you receive is illegitimate. It's in it, and it's not even like, a dissatisfied customer. It's it's somebody trying to to game the system, sort of the worst versions of friendly fraud. Um, you're still not going to be you're still not going to be able to bat a thousand, uh, and that's just because there's humans involved, right? So when you put together a representment case, um, it actually in a lot of cases is is physically printed out and put on somebody's desk. 
Um, so, you know, they're, they're having to go through a giant stack and sort of make gut decisions, really try to understand what your case is and, and look at your evidence in a matter of minutes. And, um, you know, they're going to make different calls. Uh, there's, it's, there's no like standard, uh, thing. So, so really what you want to do is you want to develop a positive reputation, right? You want to, you want to be shown that you're, you're, you're a winner. So you, you put together really good cases that uh, are more often than not uh, upheld and uh, chargebacks are overturned in your favor. So you develop that reputation and then that'll have an impact, but there's no way that you're going to win every case, even if you have every right to win every case. That's just, just not the way it's going to work. Okay. And with that, we're going to go back all the way up to the front and um, let me put uh, Damon and my emails up there one more time. So if uh, anybody has any questions, um, they want to reach out to either Damon or myself. Uh, if either of us aren't able to help you, I'm sure that we can uh, find somebody within our respective companies that uh, can can provide you the answer, the assistance that you're looking for. Okay. Well, Damon, again, thank you so much for for coming and uh, talking about this stuff today. It was it was a pleasure to have you, and uh, thank you everyone for taking the time out of your day to join us. I hope we were able to. Uh, impart a little bit of value, dumb questions and uh, stammers, uh, stammers aside. Cool. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks everyone. Absolutely. For Thank you. Thank you too.